Sir Paul McCartney is dead. Someone else has been playing that role for more than 50 years. Prove me wrong. Sometimes things just sound so ridiculous that people disregard it out of hand. Just an immediate, that's bullshit, I'm not even listening to it. Every now and then, though, you need to open your mind a bit, step outside your comfort zone, suspend your disbelief, if you will, and dip a toe in the controversy pool. Sometimes that water feels pretty good. There are millions of conspiracy theories clandestine operations, shadow organizations, government lies. But sometimes you pick up on one that on its face sounds just too fantastic to believe. But then the more you look into it and the more you hear and the more you research, it starts to make more and more sense. You start to think to yourself, maybe there's a kernel of truth here. Maybe it's something that I should look more into. And then suddenly you fall into a wormhole And it takes you three or four days to break out of it. But you are forever changed. Your mind is forever changed. And this is one of those situations. And so for the next 45 minutes or so, I ask you to suspend your disbelief. Listen to the evidence that I'm going to present to you. Take that knowledge. And if it appeals to you, go onto the Internet. There is mountains of evidence that backs up what I'm going to say to you today. And research it a bit. And sometimes it's just fun to read these type of things. And whether or not you believe them or not, just open the mind a little bit and be open to new ideas. So with that in mind, let me say this. Paul McCartney is dead. He died either on September 11th or September 13th, 1966. He was replaced by an imposter, a body double who for the next 50 years has played the role of Sir Paul McCartney, both musically and vocally, as well as keeping up that appearance. He has done so so successfully that, in a lot of respects, one of the most iconic faces in the world has been replaced, and no one has known it. No one has picked up on it, save for some quote-unquote conspiracy theorists. How could it happen that one of the most recognizable faces and voices, one of the members of the most recognizable band, and in some circles, the greatest band of all time, could be replaced without somebody noticing this? Do people just want to believe and so they cannot see for themselves? Is it some type of delusion that I want this to be true, so it is true? Or is it just simply a crazy conspiracy hoax made up by a couple of couple of college students in the late 60s and that has somehow found legs? We're going to talk about it a little bit today. We're going to talk about some of the evidence that would lead you to believe that Paul McCartney is actually dead, because really that's, that's the more important thing to prove, right? It's easy to prove that Paul McCartney is alive. You can simply point to the television on any given night and say, there he is right there. That's Paul McCartney, live and in person on my television screen. That's easy. It's much more difficult to look at evidence and say, Paul McCartney's dead, and this is why. Paul McCartney died in 1966, and he was replaced, and this is why. Who has what to gain from replacing Paul McCartney and never mentioning it again, and carrying this conspiracy on, carrying this charade forward for the next 50 years. 
how could his bandmates, John Lennon, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr, keep that secret? How could they not bring it out? Or did they try to tell us all that Paul was actually dead, that Paul had been replaced, and were we not listening? At the very least, it's an interesting topic to explore. Because as I'm going to show you over the next half hour or so, there is a lot of evidence, physical evidence, that would at least allow you to believe that there is cause for these questions. But before we get started with that, let's go back just for a moment and think of what the Beatles were in 1966. They were basically about four years into their eventual eight-year recording career. They were arguably the biggest band that had ever existed or would ever exist. They had several number one albums, countless number one singles. At one point, I believe that they had the top five singles on the Billboard charts consecutively at the exact same time. The top five songs were all Beatles songs. Unrealistic things that most, most artists can only dream about were accomplished by the Beatles. But they were essentially a 1960s boy band. They were uh, similar to the Monkees. They were good-looking guys who dressed the same, who had some choreographed dance moves, three-part harmonies. Their songs were very simple and straightforward, poppy songs. They were so big, in fact, that performing live became a trial for them. It became something that was no longer pleasing to do. They were beginning getting mobbed so regularly they couldn't make it from their car to the hotel. They had to have, literally, body doubles standing in for them, leaving the hotel through the front door and getting into the limousine and getting mobbed by these young ladies so that they could leave from the side door. It was a common practice. So they got to the point where the hysteria over the band had become so much that they couldn't even hear themselves play anymore. It couldn't even hear the music that was coming out of their instruments because the wave of sound coming at them was stronger than the wave of sound that they could produce. And in fact, their last concert, which was at Shea Stadium in New York, it was a very iconic concert uh, where they played the baseball stadium. The police that were assigned to the crowd control, they reported, quote-unquote, rivers of urine flowing from the girls uh, and the women that were in attendance because they were so hysterical about seeing the Beatles live and in person. It was so life-changing that they literally could not control their body functions. That is the level of hysteria that was going on for the band at that time. That Shea Stadium concert ended up being their last concert. From that point on, they were not a touring band. They were a studio band from 1966 through 1970 when they finally disbanded. After 1966, they all went their separate ways for several months. And in some cases, Paul McCartney was actually out of the public eye for about eight months from 1966 until 1967, when ultimately uh, they went in and and recorded Sgt. Pepper, which was as if a completely different band had stepped in and created an album with completely different music. And granted, during that time frame, during that mid-60s time frame, they were diving into the spiritual realm becoming much more curious about different religious practices, going to India, spending time with uh, different holy men. They were trying to explore themselves, higher learning, higher powers in general. So there were options there. There was potential 
that the things that they were doing could affect their music, could shape their music a bit. And so when, again, when they came back in 1967 and Sgt. Pepper was released, and it was an amazing departure from what they had been doing before, and that carried on through the Magical Mystery Tour and the White Album and Let It Be and Abbey Road right up to the point when they disbanded in 1970. It was a remarkable change. They went from a band that every woman liked to the band that every guy liked. And in fact, when uh, the mid-80s, when I really became a Beatles fan, it was because of that Sgt. Pepper through Let It Be phase. I was never a big fan of what came before that. I always enjoyed the spiritual and, and the musical explorations that came after. So where did that come from? And how did that break shape them and mold them? Well, some people say that that break was because, in reality, Paul McCartney had a car accident. He had a meeting with the band in 1966. This is the story that that we're told. With Brian Epstein, his manager, and, and the rest of the band. And he was upset with the recording responsibilities or the writing responsibilities that he was required to do for the next album. And so he stormed out of the studio and he got into his car and it was a rainy night. And as, as he drives away, he picks up a young lady on the side of the road who'd become stranded. They started to drive. She looked over and recognized who he was immediately. He was the most recognizable face on the planet. She became overcome by this knowledge that she's in the car of Paul McCartney, which distracted him, obviously. He becomes distracted. He swerves off of the road, and he runs into, reportedly, a telephone pole, damaging the car. Paul is trapped inside, and the car catches fire, and Paul burns to death. This is the story. At that point, the Beatles were so big and so influential that the British government could not allow them to fail. And there were actually a couple of very brief, very quick news reports that came out and said that there had been a car accident and that a Beatle had been involved. And then it was a secondary, it was a follow-up that actually said that Paul McCartney was involved in this car accident. Those were very quickly retracted and pulled. They didn't last long, but there is evidence that they existed. At that point, the British government became involved in the continuance of the band. And Brian Epstein, the manager, suggested that they hire someone as a temporary solution. Someone that could come in and keep the band going on a short-term basis because there was real fear that if they told the world right now that Paul McCartney had passed and that the Beatles were breaking up, that news may simply be too much to bear. Again, several months before, they were literally wading through rivers of urine from young ladies who were hysterical, just seeing them on the baseball field. What would they do if they were told four, five, six months later that this band no longer existed and that Paul McCartney had been killed? So in some respects, they were looking at this as a way of shielding the public from that type of news. So what do they do? They looked into hiring a body double, and all of the Beatles had body doubles. And in fact, body doubles are very common, both in politics and in entertainment. It is not unheard of that political figures or popular figures would have someone else that steps in from time to time, especially if there's a particular public appearance or you know something where the actual star is sick, but there is something that has been planned, and you have to be there. 
they all have body doubles. To, and in fact, Paul McCartney's body double was a man named William Campbell, a.k.a. Billy Shepard, Billy Pepper, Billy Shears. He was involved. He not only was a body double for Paul McCartney and utilized in that role, he also wrote for the Beatles fan magazine, and he was the leader of a cover band called Billy Pepper and the Pepper Pots. And Billy Pepper and the Pepper Pots covered quite a few Beatles songs as well. So there are Billy Pepper albums out there, and they had a couple of uh, remakes from classic blues tunes, and then there are some Beatles songs mixed in. So he existed. He was a, a body double for Paul McCartney. So as a temporary solution, the idea was floated that let's bring in Billy Campbell, a.k.a. Billy Shears, as a temporary solution. And you might think, why would John and George and Ringo go along with this idea that Paul McCartney, your mate, your best friend, has passed away? We cannot allow this band to break up because of the potential impact that it may have on the rest of the world at that point. Not to mention the impact that it may have had on Britain. The Beatles being probably one of the biggest exports that England had going for it at that point. Why would they have gone along with the idea that we are going to take this body double and insert him into the band, even for a short time, just to keep the band going until we can find a good opportunity to break up the band in a more acceptable way? Because it would not have been acceptable for the Beatles to break up based on the death of Paul McCartney. So this is an opportunity to add someone else in as a temporary measure and work out an escape plan. Work out an opportunity to dissolve the band without creating worldwide upheaval. Why would John Lennon have gone along with that? Why would John Lennon have gone along with the demands placed on him by Billy Campbell? At that point, Billy was saying, I will join the band. I will do this for you, but I am going to be the leader of the band. And from that point on, you can see that Paul McCartney takes on the leadership role of the Beatles from 1967 until they disband. He was the driving force. He was the leadership of the Beatles. And even since then, in the years since they broke up, Paul has legally tried to change the name of the songs that he was primary writer for from Lennon and McCartney, which is kind of the universal naming convention of their work together, to McCartney-Lennon trying to get that top billing, trying to, again, assert the fact that he was in charge in those situations. Why would John Lennon have taken that on? Some say simply because he was so distraught over the death of his best friend that he was willing to agree to anything at that point. He was going to say yes to anything. And he did, with the understanding that it would be a short-term proposition and that they would put these clues in their music on their cover art that Paul was dead, that we are no longer the same Beatles, we are a new Beatles, and we will be breaking up. But nobody caught on. And in fact, this enormous change in musical influence appealed to an incredible amount of the audience. You went from the young ladies screaming your name in Shea Stadium to being the coolest band in the world. And every man growing out their hair long, growing beards, kicking back, listening to Come Together. So it didn't quite work out. If that's what they were planning to do was to change that musical direction, add, drop those clues in that they were a different band, and maybe turn off a portion of their fan base 
It didn't work the way they were looking for. It actually turned on that fan base or it captured fan base that wasn't there previously. So now they're stuck. Now what do we do? So now the rift between the rest of the band and Paul grew and grew. And the musical differences between the three of them and Paul began to show and began to crack the foundation. And Paul and John knew Paul and John did not see eye to eye on the musical direction. And that ultimately was what caused they could no longer go on together that way. But time went by and nobody seemed to notice. They come in for the recording sessions for Sgt. Pepper and anybody who sees the video, and the video is on Google. And that's really kind of what I am bringing this whole thing up for you now, is to give you the opportunity to, to spark a little bit of imagination in your mind and then go out and find these things. It's everywhere in the inter- internet. There is video and, and pictures everywhere that is comparing and contrasting the 1966, pre-1966 Paul McCartney with the post-1966 Paul McCartney. Just mountains of video evidence, uh, interviews where you could see the changes in, in this man. So he comes back in 1967, prior to the start of the Sgt. Pepper recordings, and according to some people, looked gaunt looked significantly different, was wearing a mustache for the first time ever that in some people's minds looked fake. It did not look real. Uh, Also looked like he had potentially a wig on or some type of hair extension that really kind of obscured the shape of his head or the shape of his face and, and kind of got down in front of him. And, you know, I've seen the photos myself and I've seen the pictures of Paul after Sergeant Pepper. And I, and as a young child, I noticed the differences I thought it was more just drugs. You know, all of those guys were using drugs. All of them were taking something at that point. And so to me, to look a little bit more glassy-eyed, a little bit sleepier, and a little bit more slack-jawed, maybe is normal when you are heavily under the influence of some, uh, whether it be LSD or marijuana or some other type of drug, uh, some mind-altering substance. There's going to be a physical change there from the ingestion of those substances. So I kind of attributed it to that. But the the story is that, you know, that, again, that he that he came in at that point and looked significantly different. And he had just returned from Africa where he'd been for several months with one of their managers. I think, I believe he called it a, a vacation, but also he had to go down and, and he saw a doctor in, in Africa. That leads you to think, well, what the hell would he be going to Africa for a, for a doctor? But that was one of the uh, excuses for being there for several months. So he comes back. And so Billy Campbell is thinking to himself, this is potentially the end of my life. This is the end of Billy Campbell as we know it. From this point on, it becomes apparent that he is going to be Paul McCartney going forward. And in reality, when you look at it, Billy turned out to be an incredible musician, able to perform better than Paul. And in a lot of respects, he was better than Paul. A lot of the things that I've read about Paul McCartney was that he was a self-taught bass player. And the reason he took up the bass was because he was not a better guitar player than George Harrison or John Lennon. Fast forward five years, and I understand that if you are a musician and that's all you do for a living, you're going to be practicing, you're going to get better at your craft, and I totally respect that. But by the time we get to 1967 you know, four, five, six years into their musical careers. He goes from the worst guitar player in the band to an amazing piano player. He plays 
the tuba and the sousaphone and, and, and several different brass instruments that he hadn't shown capabilities on previously. And he's now, in, in the later albums, you know, the Let It Be sessions, things like that, he's now going in and has been accused of part of the friction with him and George Harrison was that he was going in after the fact and overdubbing his own guitar work over George Harrison's because he didn't like the way that George Harrison was doing the guitar. And in fact, he also drummed during the White Album. Ringo Starr briefly left the band for about two weeks because he was kind of fed up with the interactions that were going on there. And Paul McCartney played the drums on two of the songs that are actually on the album. So it, it definitely is food for thought. You know, where did this increase in musical ability come from? Where did the these different musical influences come from? And that's just in terms of the musical. Also, just in terms of physical changes, uh, from 1966, Paul McCartney was about 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, he was pretty much in line with George Harrison and John Lennon. They were all almost identical sizes. By 1967, by the cover of Sgt. Pepper, he was visibly taller than them all. He was, he was significantly larger than the rest of the band. His head in 1966, his face was, a, was kind of a round, cherubish. He was much more oval in 1967. You could say that as anybody gets older, their face thins out a little bit and you become a little bit more mature looking. I think that the difference is there that there wasn't a five-year gap between those pictures. There was a you know, 1966 to 1967. There was a one-year gap there. And it was a significant change between them. His ears are things that you can't fix in terms of plastic surgery. His ears were different. And again, there are pictures online on Google where you look at his earlobes pre-66, post-67. They're completely different ears. His teeth, his mouth. His mouth in 1966 had a much more narrow palate. His teeth were very scrunched together. There wasn't a lot of room in his mouth for the teeth that he had. In 67, he had a much larger palate, and his teeth weren't nearly as crooked. His head size, in general, was significantly larger in 1967 than it was in 1966. The difference between his eyes, uh, the distance between the, the center of the eyes, which is usually a, a pretty good indicator of who you are and doesn't change with time. Once you are matured, it, it pretty much stays the same. That was significantly different. The nose, if you look at a profile, his nose is slightly upturned in 1966, and it's more uh, downturned in 1967. So a lot of body changes took place, which led to a young man from, I believe, Michigan University in 1969 to kind of take a look at that. A, look at the pictures, and then B, analyze clues that he felt were being left in the albums themselves that Paul was dead. So when you took the obvious or the seemingly obvious physical characteristic changes from Paul McCartney, and then coupled them with, say, the cover of Sgt. Pepper, which by all accounts looks like a funeral that's being held. And off to the side is the old Beatles, and they're kind of black and white and hunched over, and in the center is the new Beatles, a.k.a. Sgt. Pepper, Billy Pepper and the Pepper Pots. This is now Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Lonely Hearts... Why? Because the remainder of the band is mourning uh, the loss of one of their mates, potentially. From that point on, all of the symbolism, all of the pictures that go on into the album artwork from 1967 to 1970 sets Paul apart. So in one photo, the whole band is standing in white tuxedos, 
Each of the other three members has a red rose. Paul has a black rose, signifying death. On the cover of Abbey Road, that some people have surmised that that entire cover is showing a funeral scene. John Lennon is in white. He's the priest. Ringo Starr is in black. He is the undertaker. Paul is off step. So the other three men are all on on the same step. Paul is off step and he's barefoot, which symbolizes he's the dead man. And George Harrison is the gravedigger. There are four distinct personalities there, and it's done on purpose. It isn't just that they walked in dressed like that and took a picture of themselves walking across the road. That, to me, is a stretch of the imagination, that that's just how they showed up and walked across the road. Nothing in the history of the band up to that point would lead me to believe that they did not think that cover out. You don't make Sgt. Pepper's cover, you don't make Magical Mystery Tour's cover, and then just kind of say, oh, we're just going to walk across the street, no big deal. You don't make Let It Be's cover. Let It Be's cover where the other three are with a white background looking away from the camera. Paul McCartney has a red background looking directly at the camera. Again, symbolizing he's different than us. Maybe he's not the same. Maybe he is new. So there was a lot of imagery you know, in the Sgt. Pepper Inside album, there's a there's a picture of the other three with their backs to the camera and Paul looking forward into the camera. So every opportunity they could to show you that he was different than us, he's not the same. Also, the sheer number of secret messages in the Beatles music post-1967 after Sgt. Pepper is substantial. And again, you can find anything you want to find when you start rolling a a record backwards. When you start reversing a record, your brain is going to start interpreting the things that it hears potentially into something that you want to hear. So something that may just be a garbled mess of sound may end up sounding like, Turn Me On, Dead Man, or I Killed Paul, or I Buried Paul, something like that. Your brain is going to reach and create meaning out of sound. So you may be just misinterpreting what it is that you hear once you start reversing that record. But the amount of those messages that have been found on those four albums is almost astounding. Uh, it, It speaks to the amount of time that people have to mine that body of work and sift through song after song after song to try to find it but it also bears noting that it's there, or at least our brains perceive that it's there. So again, it goes back to, are the Beatles really that smart? Are they really that calculated and manipulating that they can engineer into an otherwise amazing song? A secret message, if you roll it backwards? Who was the first person who ever thought to themselves, let me play this tape or record backwards and see what I find? And yep, sure enough, it's telling me that Paul is dead. Who was that person that decided I'm going to roll this record back and see what message the Beatles left for me? It seems almost to strain credibility. But again, apparently it was something that was done. There are dozens of examples. Strawberry Fields, I Am the Walrus, the entire Sgt. Pepper album, really, where they're talking about Paul being dead, I killed Paul, 
I buried Paul talking about Paul blowing his mind out in a car. A lot of those references have been interpreted. Also, in a lot of ways, his vocal signature changed as well. And there have been studies, and again, you can find these on Google. There have been vocal studies of Paul McCartney singing yesterday, just yesterday, singing it in the early 60s, and then singing it again more recently, and simply saying that those two vocal profiles do not match. They're not a match. So it just leads more inconsistency. It just, it just gives more room for questions. Why are there so many physical and vocal changes in this person? How do you go from Paul with dark brown eyes to Paul McCartney now who has hazel eyes? His, ha- his eyes, depending on when you look at him, they're green. That doesn't change. Your eye color does not change. Also, the fact that there are numerous illegitimate children. Paul McCartney has somewhere in the, in the realm of three to four illegitimate children that he claimed that he has paid for, has been named as the father on the birth certificate. And one of those being um, Bettina Krishpin, a German woman, who her mother Erica met Paul in 1961, very, very early 1960s. And there was a baby born. So Paul was 17, I guess, at that point, very young. He is listed on the birth certificate as the father of the child. He did contribute child support to her for the first 18 years of her life. He financially supported her and claimed that he was the father. Well, Bettina comes back to him when she's old enough, and she wants to ensure that Paul McCartney is the father, and she has a blood test drawn, and it comes back that there's no match. This happened in, uh, I believe, the 1990s. So it comes back that there is no match between her and Paul McCartney. And her mother, Erica, is furious because she adamantly confirms that she was with no one else during that time frame. She was only with Paul McCartney at that point, and that the man who has come in and done this DNA test was a fraud. And in fact, saying that not only was it a different person in terms of the photo, but also had a different handwriting, and the signature on the DNA test was done by a right-handed man, not a left-handed man. So she was incredibly certain that this was a fraud who had come in and taken this test. Also, a a more recent wife of Paul McCartney, Heather Mills, they had a public divorce. A huge settlement, an enormous settlement went to Heather Mills from her very short-term marriage to Paul McCartney. In numerous interviews, she has said that there was a tremendous fraud perpetrated by Paul against her. And she said it was not about infidelity. It was something much more than that. She would not say what it was, but she has said that she has a box of proof or information that would go public in the circumstance that something actually happens to her. So it sounds to me like she has some type of insurance policy set up that if she goes missing, this comes out. So it's just, again, not proof of anything. Neither one of those stories is proof of anything. But what it does is it causes you to think. And potentially it causes you to research things a little bit more. But when the new Paul comes in and takes control of the band, the direction of the music obviously changed. In some regards, they became even more successful than they had been previously. But that knowledge starts to take its toll on the internal members of the band. For one, Brian Epstein, the manager, the man who had suggested that Billy Shears, Billy Campbell, was brought in 
ended up overdosing in 1967, a drug overdose that killed him. So maybe that knowledge that they were defrauding the public, that they had perpetrated this plan with this imposter, was that something that just weighed on him so heavily that he had to turn to that substance abuse to dull that pain a little bit and it got the better of him? I don't know. Also, the fact that John Lennon and Paul McCartney were childhood friends. They were best mates. They did everything together. Their bond could not have been stronger. Suddenly, all of that changed in 1967, leading ultimately to the point where they're almost fist fighting in 1968, 1969. The blame has gone to Yoko, obviously. Historically, the the blame has gone to Yoko Ono that she broke up the band. But it is just as likely that something happened between Paul and John that strained their relationship. And in fact, if you look at their their works after the Beatles were over, George Harrison, Ringo Starr, and John Lennon worked together numerous times after the Beatles broke up. There were multiple albums that John Lennon put out that George Harrison played guitar and Ringo played the drums. There were numerous George Harrison albums where Ringo Starr played the drums. None of those individuals ever played with Paul McCartney again. That right there leads you to believe that maybe it wasn't Yoko, maybe it was Paul. If you look at, there are video feed where in the 1995 reunion of the Beatles, when they started to release all of that material and anthology compilation, there is a point where Paul McCartney walks into the room and George Harrison gets up and can audibly hear him say, hello, William. He literally gets up and says, hello, William. On camera. Also during one of, uh, I'm not exactly sure which movie it is, it's one of those documentary movies, When John Lennon Was Alive, George Harrison again refers to Paul as Beetle Bill. So there is video confirmation on more than one occasion from George Harrison that maybe Paul McCartney is not Paul McCartney, maybe he's someone else. John Lennon also wrote a song called How Do You Sleep after the Beatles broke up, where he basically straight out says... Freaks were right when they said you were dead, and that the man who's here now isn't the same Paul McCartney. But then you could just as easily look at that and say, well, maybe that's just because our relationship has soured, and I'm not the man. Maybe I've grown, and and the fact that I've grown, we've grown apart. And so I'm not the man I was yesterday. I am different now. I've grown. I've matured. So I guess you could look at that a couple different ways. But the prevailing way it's been looked at is you died in 1966, and the man who's been sitting here now for, at that point, 10 years was an imposter. So it seems like there could be pretty easy options for Paul McCartney to kill this. It's been going on now for 50 years. George Harrison's now gone. John Lennon's now gone. And depending on who you talk to, there is uh, additional talk that maybe John Lennon's assassination was all a part of the fact that he was very loose with his lips in some cases and wasn't too shy about letting it out that this was not the real Paul McCartney and that there were subliminal messages within their songs and that maybe some of the things they were trying to put forth in their album artwork was exactly what you thought it was. And so that was against the plan. And maybe he was becoming too much of a wild card. I don't know that I believe that, I think that there are just crazy people in the world sometimes who get their own self-importance from taking from someone else. Um, Mark David Chapman was one of those people, that he got his level of fame by taking someone else's. So I don't know that I believe that necessarily, but that is another side of the story that, that goes forward. But Paul could change this tomorrow. Why hasn't Paul McCartney ever just come out and said, 
You know what? I had a car accident several years ago, and it required quite a bit of plastic surgery. And I had to have some surgery on my nose or my jaw or my eyes. That, I think, in itself would put down a lot of the question. If you have somebody saying, well, you know what? I, I had an accident. I had a crash. There was some surgery required. There was some facial reconstruction required. And that's why I look a little bit different. Look at Jennifer Gray as an example. You know, she claims that she had a car accident and it required her to have her nose fixed. It, it ended up completely changing the look of her face. She looks like a different person, but it's believable. I think the same thing could be said for Paul McCartney. Simply come out and say, I had to have some work done. And as a result of that, you know, we're talking plastic surgery, 1960s, 1970s. It's not as advanced as, as it is today. You can't expect the same outcomes as you could today with the medical advancements that we've had. So it's not unbelievable that it could happen. I think that alone would knock down a lot of the doubters. But there are a lot of options. And he could have done this at any point up until now. He could have done this back when his father was still alive, had a very simple DNA test and said, look, I am my father's son. He never had that test. His younger brother is alive right now. He could very simply have a DNA test and say, I am related to this man. He has not had that done. As recently as 2009, Wired Italia did a, a magazine article where they said, okay, we're going to use facial recognition software, new software. We're going to take a look at historical photos of Paul pre-66 and post-67, and we're going to put this Paul is dead to rest right now. So they started to take a look at those photographs, and they started to compare them. And as time went on, their editor would say, hey, where are we at with this? Where are we at with this? And they kept saying, we need more time. We need more time. We need more time. And the reason they needed more time was because the longer they went on, the more convinced they became that those two people actually weren't the same. For all the reasons that I'd said earlier, they, that was where the conclusive evidence came from, was from 2009 and Wired Magazine Italia. The article is in Italian. You can find it online. And it goes through all of the different aspects of what they were looking for, what they were trying to prove, and what they found. They talked about the teeth. They talked about the shape of the mouth. They talked about the distance between the eyes. They talked about the head shape, the ears that did not match, the jawline that did not match. They did not talk about the relative height because they were simply looking at the facial structures between the two photographs. They talked about the eyes. And they concluded at the end of this article that the individual that are in the photographs in 1966 is not the same individual that was in photographs of the band after 1967. How do they come up with that? How do you rationalize that someone's been able to pull that hoax off for this long? It boggles the mind. So is Paul McCartney dead? Did Paul McCartney die in 1966? I don't know. I would like to think not. Because I want to believe that the things that I've seen and the things that I've enjoyed and the feelings that I've got from the Beatles and the music were real. And they weren't a fabrication. And that they weren't some form of manipulation. And I guess you could look at it and say, it doesn't matter if they were. If I still got a good feeling and still got uh, enjoyment from it, it doesn't matter how it was created. You could say that. And I could agree with that in some cases. 
But I guess it's just kind of deep down, you don't ever want to feel like you're being lied to. So I want to believe that everything that happened with the Beatles and everything that's happened with Paul McCartney is above board. But there are so many videos online, so many uh, interviews that he gives where when somebody asks him about this, he'll say, well, you know, I'm the imposter because he's dead and I'm the guy playing him. He'll he'll say that under the guise of being coy and, uh, and trying to be funny. But all that does is give that conspiracy more legs. All it does is keep it going. Why not have a DNA test and settle it once and for all? I don't know, but uh, until something like that happens, I can see this continuing on and on and on. This particular topic, I could probably talk about it for an hour and a half, two hours, three hours, five hours. There's just so much information that is out there. And in reality, if you want to really investigate it, there's also a book by a person named Thomas E.U. Harriet. Look it up. I can't quite remember the name. I believe it's uh, The Memoirs of Billy Shears. And it's told from the first person account. So it's autobiographical in nature. And he, this, this author, is saying that he is getting this story from Paul McCartney, who is telling his story and telling how he became this persona how he took it over, how he plays the role, how the fact that those around him now, you know, Linda McCartney knew that he was not the real Paul McCartney. Jane Asher, who was his actual Paul McCartney's fiance, girlfriend prior to 1967, also knew and helped keep up the appearance for a, a short brief time after he made the transition, just to kind of solidify again in the public that this is Paul McCartney, even though in pictures of us, if you look at a picture of us from last year, he's basically my height. And if you look at him now, he's four inches taller than me. And you can find those online too. So somehow or another, he could make this happen. He could change this. Those around him know the role he's playing. He's been playing it for 50 years. At this point, he cannot let it go. He can't bring it down. The brand of Paul McCartney the financial empire of Paul McCartney is too large. If he were to come out now and say that I'm not Paul McCartney, I'm William Shears, he stands to be decimated financially. He'll never recover from it. The legitimate children that he does have with Linda McCartney, all of that financial wealth would be under attack by true McCartney heirs, you know, by those individuals who are still living, because again, his father is not living any longer. His brother still is. Uh, if you ask, what is their relationship? I don't know. Paul McCartney did not go to his father's funeral. By all accounts, his father was a tremendous father who was very supportive of Paul. Paul did not go to the funeral, which just once again lends to the mystery. If you look at Paul's weird response and awkward response once John Lennon was assassinated, it adds to the mystery. It's just uh, a fascinating topic. There is enough information out there to provide reasonable doubt that this individual is who he says he is. And again, body doubles are real. Body doubles are common. Body doubles are accepted, especially in that time frame, and especially when the mountain of individuals and females and humanity that would come crushing down on you necessitated that you had these body doubles. All of those things exist. I would recommend that you take a look online if this is a topic that interests you. It is a rabbit hole. You will fall down it. You will spend five hours reviewing information and proof, quote unquote, that Paul McCartney died in 1966. At the end of that time frame, you will question what uh, you thought was true. I almost guarantee it. 
So is Paul McCartney dead? I don't know. I would like to believe he is not, but there is a lot of proof that says he might be and that we have been duped for the last 50 years.